Now, the central question that I'm addressing today is how should we evaluate post Mao China's educational development? This question has prompted intense debate, not just within China itself, but also far beyond, not least in America, Britain, and here in Australia. We see the media frothing over tiger mothers, documentaries asking whether our kids are tough enough for Chinese-style schooling, and at the back of all this, cross-national comparisons of pupil performance uh, purporting to show China, or at least Shanghai, outperforming everywhere else. Panicked commentary seems to converge on one message. The Chinese are coming. By out-educating an effete West, they threaten to overtake us economically, outfox us technologically, and outmaneuver us strategically. In some respects, we've been here before. Education, writes Archie Brown in his History of Communism, was one area in which communist states did not have to fear comparison with the rest of the world. Eastern Bloc regimes were eager to trumpet their educational achievements, and Westerners were alarmed at the strategic menace these seemed to pose. And there was much to admire. High levels of literacy and numeracy were the norm for these societies, while the Soviet Union itself shone, Brown says, especially in mathematics, the hard sciences and engineering. China appears to have gone one step further, harnessing educational success to the pursuit of rapid economic growth and improved livelihoods. No wonder, then, that its achievements are alternately fated and feared in terms sometimes evocative of the yellow peril panic of a century ago. But has post-Mao China earned its widespread reputation for educational brilliance? In the closing chapter of our new book, Education and Society in Post-Mao China, Xiaodong and I offer a tentative answer, but we also challenge some of the assumptions that typically frame such questions. On the one hand, success is relative. How successful a country looks depends very much on our comparative perspective. But more fundamentally, what counts as success depends on what we think education is ultimately for. I'll begin today by reviewing the educational record of post-Mao China through the prism of four different perspectives that have informed much research in this area. I'll then move on to a more extended analysis of the OECD approach to evaluating educational success, for which Shanghai has become a poster child in recent years. Shanghai is where official attempts to burnish Chinese educational achievement have met the ostensibly pragmatic agenda of Westerners seeking to identify what works. This has involved serious distortions of Shanghai's and China's educational performance. But more fundamentally, I'll argue that attempts to frame Shanghainese or Chinese schooling as a shining success story reveal an impoverishment of our ideas about the purposes of education. Uh, so I'll conclude by discussing some of the implications of that impoverishment. The first of our four perspectives is the orthodox or official one. Research in this vein celebrates educational achievements that are real enough. China has comprehensively outperformed India, for example, on virtually every conceivable educational measure, from the near universalization of basic schooling for girls as well as for boys, to more recently participation rates in higher education. Allowing for some exaggeration in government statistics, 
By the standards of many developing countries, China's performance is impressive. Nor have problems been denied. Educational quality, rural provision of basic education, issues with vocational training, the challenge of inequality and the menace of corruption have all at various times elicited vocal expressions of official concern. This has typically been framed in ways that underline the essential wisdom of the party's developmental strategy, so drawing attention to problems with local delivery rather than broader systemic dysfunction. However, for defenders of the orthodox position, the capacity of an increasingly educated governing bureaucracy to acknowledge problems and adapt is itself testament to the strength of the China model. As depicted by the philosopher Daniel Bell, with meritocracy at the top, experimentation in the middle and democracy at the bottom, this model itself reflects the legitimating function of educational accomplishment in what remains a fundamentally Confucian society. If that orthodox vision emphasises pragmatism, then anti-globalism, our second perspective, is more alive to the ideological premises that have shaped and informed official policy. Prominent amongst these are discourses of competition, economism and scientism that have come to dominate educational debate not just in China but in many societies around the world. In this view, we can largely attribute the extreme marketization of Chinese education since the 1990s to the global dominance of Washington consensus neoliberalism. As an impoverished China emerged from isolation, this, this view goes, neoliberal ideas both profoundly influenced elites' understanding of the outside world and dictated the terms of their re-engagement with it. At the same time, other external factors, particularly the 1989 student movement, seen within China as externally induced, and the collapse of the Soviet Union, reinforced elites' perception of the overriding need for political stability and national strength in the face of Western hostility. While official emphasis on the risks of instability may be self-serving, recent history gives Chinese good reasons to fear foreign malevolence and domestic chaos. While recognising that there may be a heavy cost attached to China's focus on nurturing talent at the expense of other goals, the anti-globalist uh, uh, stance, or people taking that stance, are inclined to see this as a price imposed ultimately by a pseudo-imperialist world system on semi-peripheral societies. China must join that system to beat it. While ideology permeates orthodox and anti-globalist arguments, what we call practice-oriented scholarship, our third category, generally claims matter-of-fact objectivity. The focus here is on seeking technical improvements to existing practice. Exemplified by aid agency-funded research or programmes such as Stanford University's Rural Education Action Project, this approach has yielded a wealth of invaluable quantitative data. Issues of educational access for underprivileged groups such as rural children, migrants, girls or ethnic minorities have been subjected to sophisticated statistical analysis which helps to correct or supplement sometimes unreliable or partial official data. Econometrics has been widely applied within this paradigm, even in areas not obviously susceptible to a quantitative approach. 
But heavy reliance on quantitative methods also lends this kind of research an aura of scientific legitimacy, while allowing researchers to avoid sensitive ethical or political questions. Political or ethical critique may sometimes be implicit in practice-oriented research, but in what we term critical scholarship, it is explicit and central. This approach, our fourth perspective, recognises that educational issues can seldom be reduced to purely technical considerations, but involve politics, cultural norms and entrenched privilege. In contemporary China, this is emphatically so with respect to the household residency or hukou system, college entrance quotas, educational funding arrangements and pervasive marketization. Fundamental reform in these areas would require tackling the enormous privileges of urban elites, including those of the ruling bureaucracy itself. But as Daniel Bell, himself advocate of the China model, has observed, uh, central authorities lack sufficient power and motivation to overcome vested interests. History is crucial to such analysis, not least because it helps us understand how vested interests became vested in the first place. In China, it is hard to sustain an argument that impersonal global forces were more important here than domestic agency. Decisions such as those to prioritise the nurturing of elite talent following the Cultural Revolution or to vocationalise much of the high school sector from the 1980s or to expand fee-based higher education in a late 1990s Big Bang, or to tie post-Tiananmen regime legitimacy to a virulent strain of nationalism, all of these were not simply technocratic answers to objective historical problems. Many of these moves were hotly contested within Chinese society and the Communist Party itself, but none of them were forced on the country from outside. Although neoliberal ideas have certainly been influential, their reception within China has been selective and partial. And to the extent that such ideas have come to frame global debate, China itself has also exercised significant influence, whether by pioneering university league tables, for example, or joining PISA, or contributing to the creation of an international higher education market. In post-Mao China, policy on education and more generally has been governed by two overriding goals. The maintenance of socio-political stability and the pursuit of prosperity. Stability means determination to maintain party control and prosperity supports this by offering various constituencies an enhanced stake in the status quo. China's communists having learnt from the Soviet failure here. Prosperity also enhances the resources of the party state boosting its capacity to project power abroad and appeal to nationalist sentiment at home, even while some elites are becoming more transnational in their outlook and interests. The role of the educational ingredient in this formula has been essentially fourfold. Generating human capital, promoting loyalty to the party state and faith in its developmental model, channeling popular aspiration into politically innocuous socially atomizing competitive impulses and, related to the latter, supplying the established social and political order with meritocratic legitimacy. Meanwhile, 
underlying both the developmental strategy itself and conceptions of education's contribution to it has been a fundamentally instrumentalist vision of the role of the citizen in relation to the state. That instrumentalism is where the outlook of China's communist technocrats broadly converges with that of the OECD's neoliberal functionaries. Since the 1980s, the language of entrepreneurship, human capital, the skills agenda and the knowledge economy has come to pervade the educational vision of the OECD and many developed societies, especially in the Anglosphere and East Asia. The 2011 book, Surpassing Shanghai, an agenda for American education built on the world's leading systems, which was prepared in close collaboration with the OECD, defines high performance in terms of the complex knowledge and skills needed in advanced economies, as well as students' ability to apply that knowledge and those skills to problems with which they are not familiar. The book gives a nod to the importance of equity by insisting that it complements and reinforces efficiency. The authors claim that the most successful education systems uniformly invest the most money on the students who have the steepest climb up to reach high standards. Now, at no point has post-Mao China remotely fulfilled that condition. But this study promotes China, or more accurately Shanghai, as an exemplary model. Some influential Western observers seem to find their faculties clouded by oriental mystique. After visiting one elite Beijing school, the UK's former education secretary Michael Gove, enthusing over the high level of the students' work, called for Britain to implement a cultural revolution, just like the one they've had in China. As Paul Morris at University College London has observed, Pisa's capacity to measure even the fairly narrow range of competencies they test has been shown to be highly dubious. But this does not dent these tests' popularity among Anglophone policymakers and commentators. Selective citation of OECD data has proved invaluable for whipping up moral panic. This penchant owes much to an idea of education as the tonic of equitable neoliberalism. If education on its own levels the playing field, offering equal opportunities to all, then prosperity becomes the outcome of individual merit and the poor get what they deserve. Or as Morris puts it, if economic productivity is a function of educational achievement, then there is no such thing as the undeserving rich. An ideology of rugged meritocracy recommends itself to those committed, for whatever reasons, to the virtues of the small state and minimal welfare provision. This is despite the complete lack of evidence for any causal link between PISA performance and a country's subsequent rate of economic growth, as Hikaru Komatsu and Jeremy Rapoli of Kyoto University have recently shown. Nevertheless, even some fierce critics of PISA seemingly choose to fight on the relatively narrow terrain of national competitiveness and economic efficiency. Chinese-American scholar Zhao Yong, author of Who's Afraid of the Big, the Big Bad Dragon? Why China Has the Best and Worst Education System in the World, contrasts Chinese authoritarianism with American liberal democratic values. He was writing before last year's election. He compares the current panic over Chinese educational success 
to the Sputnik shock of the late 1950s and talk of the, in the 1980s of Japan as number one. However, his central criticism of the Chinese system is that its authoritarian education, essentially unchanged since imperial times, failed to cultivate talents to defend against Western aggressions backed by modern technology and the sciences. For Zhao, it is apparently, therefore, not so much liberal values in themselves, but their proven effectiveness in stimulating skills crucial to economic growth and national strength that demonstrates their superiority over China's authoritarian model. So even while critiquing Chinese statism, he implicitly endorses an essentially statist metric for educational performance. I'll return to the question of metrics a bit later. But first, I'll interrogate the performance of Shanghai and China rather more closely. In terms of the skills tested by PISA in reading, science and maths, this performance has certainly been strong. On almost every measure, Shanghai's students appear to outperform those in the other education systems surveyed, not just scoring more highly overall, but also exhibiting a more equal distribution of scores across the cohort. In the most recent 2015 round of PISA tests, Beijing, Jiangsu, Guangdong uh, and Guangdong were included alongside Shanghai, and the ranking of the Chinese entry fell significantly. But these regions still scored highly in maths and science. But let's look now at some of the uh, claims made for the significance of those earlier Shanghai results. For Jiang Minxuan, China's PISA director, success results from high expectations, a prevailing culture of rigorous effort, the government's zeal and determination to make education a priority, and the commitment to eradicate inequality in education. Chen Kaiming of Hong Kong University, uh, who happens to be Jiang Minxuan's former supervisor, credits reforms to curriculum, pedagogy, examinations and educational administration with improving instructional quality, student engagement, homework loads and access. Abolition of preferentially resourced public key schools and stricter zoning rules have, he claims, released teachers, parents and students from examination pressure. Shanghai has also shown reason and compassion in integrating the students, the, the, the children of rural migrants into public schooling. Acknowledging China's vast cram schooling industry, he describes this as remedial, while approvingly noting that parents are prepared to invest in various expensive supplementary programs. Cheng pauses briefly to acknowledge challenges. For example, students are still not given much autonomy, outstanding schools are still rare, and examination pressure still prevails. However, this perfunctory caveat seems designed to buttress the credibility of his otherwise ringing endorsement. He concludes by asserting that the spectacular reforms in Shanghai's education system have made possible a no less spectacular economic success. But what exactly is the relationship between education and economic growth? China's success in imparting basic literacy and numeracy skills to the bulk of its vast population, begun during the Mao era, has been widely credited with laying the foundations for its post-Mao industrial success. More recently, the vast expansion of secondary and tertiary education 
has certainly boosted the range and sophistication of the country's human capital. However, how much of this translates into workplace productivity and economic growth is extremely hard to measure. In the sector where that link is supposedly most direct, vocational education, attempts to create a viable alternative to the academic track have proven highly problematic. Meanwhile, labour market liberalisation and higher education expansion since the 1990s have extended and intensified credentialism. Crucial for individual display and one-upmanship, but otherwise of little intrinsic value, the stellar test scores of Shanghai's students are therefore like the extravagant plumage of a peacock, if rather less appealing aesthetically or in other respects. Amongst the consequences of this intensifying credentialism has been a significant cramping of the lives of young learners and of the concept of learning itself. Study for purposes other than exam success is actively discouraged by many teachers and parents. In China, as in test-obsessed Korea and Japan, research has indicated comparatively low intrinsic motivation amongst young learners. Where activities extraneous to the examination curriculum are encouraged, for example in music or sport, the main purpose is often still to secure advantage in the competition for places on the next rung up the educational ladder. Hence the growing tendency for China's most privileged parents to send their offspring overseas, here to Australia for example, for a more rounded, less regimented, less intense form of schooling, thereby, ironically, taking educational competition to a whole new level and helping to internationalise it. From the party's perspective, the combination of regimentation and competition boosts human capital while simultaneously fostering discipline and political quiescence. Families compelled to invest massive energy and resources in the education of what is usually a singleton child are likely to have little to spare for the distractions of political and social activism. Harnessing a deeply entrenched ideology of meritocracy to the project of catch-up modernization, the regime has followed a trail blazed by its East Asian neighbours starting with late 19th century Japan. This involves an overwhelming focus on science and technology alongside a moralising diet of patriotism and political education with doses of military boot camp. Tapping deep reserves of nationalist sentiment amongst the Chinese public, the party has appealed to folk memories of humiliation at the hands of assorted imperialists. Meanwhile, like other authoritarian East Asian regimes, such as Singapore's, it has sponsored a selective revival of Confucian learning, seeking to legitimate a hierarchically ordered polity modelled on the patriarchal family. This rehabilitation of Confucian familism has happened alongside various sweeping social changes. Labour market reform, the restructuring of state-owned enterprises and the erosion or dismantling of cradle-to-grave welfare for many urban workers. Despite efforts over the past decade or so to construct a minimal safety net, welfare safety net, publicly financed welfare provision remains very weak. Very high dependence on employment for access to basic goods such as healthcare and pensions is something China today shares with its East Asian neighbours. 
the weakness of public support compels reliance on the family for security. Entrenched expectations of filial commitment to the care of elderly relatives legitimize state parsimony, making a Confucian virtue of a necessity. Culture is typically cited as a cause here, but it is equally a convenient excuse. The ranking or sorting function of schooling thus assumes heightened importance not just for students themselves, but also for their entire families. This is especially so when the system affords few second chances and the college entrance examination is treated as a once-for-all rite of passage, branding one for life as a success or a failure. Hence the widespread disdain for a senior secondary vocational track that disbars students from careers conferring real status and material security. Confucian tradition, as well as economic necessity, accentuates the meritocratic mystique surrounding competitive public examinations in ways that shape or constrain official action. As Andrew Kipnis of Australian National University observes in his book, Governing Educational Desire, the relationship between educational desire and governance is not all one way. Bottom-up as well as top-down pressures contribute to compelling officials to display commitment to expanding access and improving quality. However, official responsiveness to the aspirations of different social constituencies has varied widely. On the one hand, emphasis on the role of select urban key point institutions in supplying elite talent has primed the system for intense competition. Meanwhile, the pattern of economic growth has fueled the rapid rise of an educationally demanding urban middle class. China's hukou system of household registration has enabled the party to cater separately to the interests of different social segments, such as rural peasants, public sector workers, educated urbanites, minority ethnic groups, thus minimising the risk that these different groups will coalesce to challenge the status quo. Ironically, given the pervasive rhetoric of one-China patriotism, what this does is to institutionalise a fragmented citizenship, granting different groups radically differentiated access to education. Chen Kaiming's claim that Shanghai has shown reason and compassion to the children of rural migrants is grossly false. Schools there and in other major cities often operate what are effectively apartheid models, segregating migrant children from locals. The central government has called for more inclusive approaches, but its actions have not matched its rhetoric. The fact that thousands of migrant children are still excluded from local secondary schools or leave them early to prepare for high school entrance exams in their home provinces has also significantly skewed Shanghai's PISA results. So most of the uh, poorer students just don't feature in the samples in Shanghai. Meanwhile, quite apart from issues of equity, policymakers and academics have been concerned that the education system is not effectively nurturing the innovative and creative talent that they see as economically and strategically essential. China's Suzhou or quality education discourse since the 1990s has echoed concerns in neighboring East Asian countries that highly standardized education systems cannot deliver the skills required by knowledge economies. 
such anxieties informed China's 2001 curricular, curriculum reforms, as well as a 2020 educational framework document promulgated in 2010. Attempts have been made to reduce the burden of homework and ratchet down competitiveness with the aim of giving students space to explore, reflect and pursue broader interests. Whatever distant observers may think, many Chinese officials, educationalists and parents are far from satisfied with a system in which success depends on competitive investment of what the sociologist Yang Dongping terms time plus sweat. Chen Kaiming suggests that this kind of dissatisfaction betokens a healthy commitment to further improvement. But in China, as in Korea and Japan, attempts to reduce educational intensity run up against the reality of largely unreformed examination systems, labour markets and welfare arrangements. Reductions to the length of the school day or to homework burdens thus drive educational demand into the private or the shadow sector. Zhao Yong explains the cram school craze with reference to crowd psychology, but it also reflects contradictions arising from an authoritarian political agenda. Along with state-mandated curricula, state-centred patriotism and an authoritarian pedagogical culture, ranking and sorting through public examinations is a crucial tool of state control. So for political purposes, the regime expects students to compete to conform but for economic purposes, it hopes they will innovate and question. These objectives are rather hard to reconcile. As Bertrand Russell once observed, there can be no agreement between those who regard education as a means of instilling certain definite beliefs and those who think that it should produce the power of independent judgment. Shanghai, then, is by no means the educational Shangri-La of OECD propaganda. The city's schooling system, like that of China more widely, remains riddled with institutionalised inequalities. Privileged key point schools have not been abolished, except in name. Examination pressure is as intense as ever, and a vast shadow education industry distorts the learning process and drains family resources. The link between wealth and access to the best state schools persists, while many children of migrants remain effectively excluded from urban schools or marginalised within them. To the extent that there is a connection between Shanghai's prosperity and its students' test performance, it is more accurate to see the former as causing the latter than the reverse. There are certainly far worse places in the world to go to school, but this is not a model that others need rush to replicate. Indeed, it exemplifies problems endemic to China's education system that many Chinese themselves have come to see as demanding urgent attention. So how should we judge educational success in China or elsewhere? The criteria will depend largely, of course, on who is doing the judging, on their interests and on their ethical assumptions. This precludes any comprehensive universal prescription for educational effectiveness, but we don't need to lazily resign ourselves to the view that it's another culture, so we can't judge it. Educational traditions, like culture more broadly, are never entirely homogenous or self-contained. As the eminent Indian thinker Amartya Sen points out, arguments between those prioritising discipline and order 
and other others emphasizing personal freedom have been a running feature of so-called Western as well as Eastern traditions. Cultures can and do change over time. Culture is history in the making, not immutable destiny. Amartya Sen's own capabilities theory offers as good a starting point as any for an attempt to conceptualize evaluative criteria. In expounding the importance of various freedoms to human flourishing, he distinguishes between their intrinsic and instrumental qualities. This distinction applies very well to education. For example, education's role as a positional good, its role in labeling you as a top or near the top sort of person, as Alison Wolfe puts it in her book, Does Education Matter?, is crucial instrumentally in distributing access to jobs and other social opportunities. But the intrinsic value of education lies elsewhere. In the knowledge, skills and values it imparts and in its capacity to broaden our horizons and expand our humanity. Both intrinsic and instrumental functions are important. But how to balance the two? How can we reward merit without penalising misfortune? And how can we stop credentialism from suffocating the intellectually liberating potential that is intrinsic to education in its fullest sense? This brings us to a more fundamental dimension of the intrinsic instrumental distinction involving the status of students themselves. Are they primarily to be thought of instrumentally as resources or capital for national development or are they in fact intrinsic to that development and the enhancement of their capabilities, hence the ultimate measure of its success? In other words, are students or indeed citizens means to an end or ends in themselves? Wei Jing Sheng, the most uh, uh, prominent Chinese dissident of the early, early most Mao, post Mao period, articulated this distinction back in 1978 when he wrote, We want to be the masters of our own destiny. We do not want to serve as mere tools of dictators with personal ambitions for carrying out modernization. An instrumentalist vision of population as human capital is by no means unique to communist China, though only there uh, have we seen it manifested in a draconian one-child policy. The Polish philosopher Leszek Kolakowski argued that totalitarian, uh, totalitarianism and concomitant instrumentalism is implicit in Marxist idealism, since all-embracing th- systems of thought lead inexorably to all-embracing systems of rule. However, neoliberal market fundamentalism is similarly all-embracing. Marxists and neoliberals share a linear conception of progress and a tendency to accord their own beliefs the status of revealed truth. Both similarly assume the aims of development to be fixed and self-evident, rendering political or ethical critique largely superfluous. The role of education systems is to provide skilled personnel to maximise the efficiency of the established economic order rather than individuals disposed to question its founding premises. Societies organised on the basis of such fixed and predetermined ends 
tend towards a technocratic or managerialist ethos, whereby the pursuit of efficiency is secured, as Zhao Yong puts it, by mon monitoring adherence to uniform and quantifiable standards imposed by rigid and unchallengeable authorities. In post-Mao China, neoliberalism has thus proved compatible, up to a point, with the instrumentalism already inherent in the communist system. The resulting hybrid has had profound implications for education. <coughs> to take economics first, we have already noted the weak evidential basis for a direct or necessary link between educational expansion and labour productivity. As Alison Wolfe and Paul Morris have both stressed, is it, it is extraordinary how many studies find no relationship between increase, increases in schooling levels and growth. But this does not diminish the vital role of education in distributing opportunity within a given socio-economic context. Here, the entire drift of post-Mao educational development has been to promote a radical hierarchization of society. Heavy public investment in elite universities alongside prolonged underinvestment in rural basic schooling, the huge and persistent funding gap between key point public high schools and their ordinary counterparts, the monetization of access to the best schools, dead end vocational, vocationalization for the underprivileged, and an examination system hugely favoring residents of major cities have all helped make early 21st century China one of the world's most unequal and class-ridden societies. There was no inevitability about this. Writing on education and state formation in East Asia, Andy Green of UCL argues that countries struggling to get on the developmental ladder can hardly afford to ignore the lesson that strong states get there first. But the experience of post-war Japan, South Korea and Taiwan suggests that strong states can pursue equity without impairing their growth prospects. Although these states shared a fairly instrumental preoccupation with human capital generation, their relatively high and uniform levels of investment in schooling, along with measures to promote standardisation, helped ensure that the benefits of growth were relatively broadly shared. By the late 1980s in these societies, uh, senior secondary education was almost universal. In China today, urban students on average receive three more years of schooling than their rural counterparts. On this basis, even judged from within the human capital paradigm, China's performance vis-à-vis -vis both OECD and BRICS countries, excluding India, was recently rated shockingly poor. The fact that post-Mao China followed a different path is attributable in the last analysis to historically contingent political choices rather than to cool, pragmatic calculation. As if intent on demonstrating Newton's third law of motion, Beijing's scientific socialists reacted against Maoist pseudo-egalitarian extremism by swinging from the late 1970s to the opposite extreme of elitist pseudo-meritocracy. To paraphrase Suzanne Pepper, the traditional emphasis on supplying a quality product for state service re-emerged triumphant after the Cultural Revolution and has remained so, despite the huge expansion of the education system since the 1980s. A shared rhetoric of 
Collectivism, harmony and stability thus masks significant differences uh, in China's educational ethos and those of post-war Japan, Korea or Taiwan. Put very simply, the primary bonds of social solidarity in China have been vertical rather than horizontal, and politics has helped to keep them that way. Broad-based growth and educational standardization in Taiwan and South Korea helped create homogenous, educated and largely middle-class citizenries who ultimately challenged one-party rule. By contrast, the complex compartmentalization of educational and other entitlements in China has kept citizens deeply divided from each other, but united in dependence on the state. Patriotic education, meanwhile, serves as an ideological adhesive, promoting loyalty to the party, legitimating its developmental strategy, and exhorting selfless devotion to the cause of national rejuvenation. That emphasis on patriotism and ideological correctness has important implications for capabilities of significance beyond economics, involving access to information and the freedom to participate actively in shaping communal life. As Amartya Sen argues, these capabilities are both instrumentally and intrinsically valuable. In an instrumental sense, societies that allow for an essentially free flow of information and a significant element of bottom-up political accountability are likely over the long run to make better collective decisions, or at least to avoid man-made catastrophes. But these freedoms are also constitutive of, or intrinsic to, our humanity and dignity. In this respect, we need to attend not just to the amount or level of education provided, but also to its content, something that a lot of educational scholarship and commentary overlook. Education is not always intrinsically beneficial and life-enhancing. If it promotes chauvinism, intolerance and a warped worldview, it can corrode social bonds and freedoms that we have reason to value. However, in calibrating both freedom of information and the ideological content of education, China's leaders have been mindful both of episodes of domestic unrest and of the experience of communist regimes elsewhere. Archie Brown argues that educational advance in the USSR proved a double-edged sword as far as the longer-term viability of the system was concerned. So long as Soviet citizens made comparisons over time and could take satisfaction from rising living standards, the regime was relatively secure. However, once they began to make comparisons across space rather than time, a great deal depended on their reference group. By the 1970s, inhabitants of Soviet Central Asia looking to cultural revolutionary China or impoverished Afghanistan could be thankful for their own relative comfort and tranquility. But educated Russians were ever more conscious of the freedoms enjoyed by West Europeans and North Americans that were denied to them. In this context, Gorbachev's dramatic liberalization combined as it was with chronic economic stagnation, triggered an uncontrollable collapse of democratic centralism. The cautionary precedent of Soviet Russia has reinforced the strenuous focus of China's post-Tiananmen leadership on improving the livelihoods of educated urbanites, while keeping a firm lid on political dissent. 
The project of conditioning students, even those who venture overseas, to view the world through a nationalistic lens appears to have been strikingly successful. Rapid economic growth has meant that for many young city dwellers, comparisons over time have supported the sense of a relentless Chinese rise towards the advanced and developed status represented by the West and Japan. But how sustainable is this strategy, or the worldview that underpins it? Notwithstanding widespread pride in China's more elevated global standing, the early 21st century has witnessed a growing sense of dissatisfaction, even of crisis, regarding the state of the education system. Yang Dongping and others have drawn attention to glaring inequalities in the distribution of educational opportunity. Perceptions that the intensity of educational competition was stifling or warping the development of youth have extended to the very top of the party, prompting calls for all-round healthy growth and intensified moral education. But political concern for students' moral fibre and psychological well-being has usually been intertwined with anxiety over potential threats to social order and stability. As the current campaign against Western ideas on university campuses illustrates, thought reform remains a stock official response to rumblings of popular discontent. At the same time, official calls for less competitive intensity and more critical thinking and creativity have generally reflected instrumental economic goals such as enhancing competitiveness in the global knowledge economy, rather than any embrace of the intrinsic virtues of freedom of speech or of thought. However, ethical concerns have also prompted broader and more searching critiques. Scholars have increasingly looked for inspiration to pre-modern Chinese thinkers, for many of whom education's role in moral transformation or character formation was paramount. Many have also invoked ideas derived from a variety of Western thinkers, not least the progressivist John Dewey. Interest in foreign ideas and systems and in those of China's own past reflects a striving by some Chinese scholars to move beyond the hoary paradigm of Chinese learning for fundamentals, Western learning for practical use. Zhong Shui Wei Ti, Xi Shui Wei Yong. Explicitly separating discussion of useful means from that of predetermined ends. That paradigm has framed much debate over education's role in modernization ever since the 19th, late 19th century. Ironically, many Western policymakers today seem intent on reversing this formula, importing the authoritarian tools of Chinese or East Asian education while somehow retaining their society's liberal democratic essence. This focus on means to the virtual exclusion of ends is epitomised by, by what we've termed the practice-oriented approach to educational research. Both China's post-Mao educational development and much Western commentary on it bears out the observation of a former president of the University of Chicago, as quoted by Alison Wolfe. Industrialization seems to charm people into thinking that the prime aim of life and hence of education, is the development of industrial power. But industrial power is of value only insofar as it enhances what Sen calls our capabilities or freedoms. From the vantage point of Japan, so often a key reference point for China, 
the mid-20th century philosopher Watsuji Tetsuro wrote that economic organization should aim not at the sating of desires in itself, but rather interhuman ethical unity through the sating of desires. Education's role in creating a sense of identity, values and citizenship was crucial to that ethical unity, but for Watsuji, its ultimate goal was not the moulding of blindly obedient foot soldiers, but the promotion of our self-awareness as individuals and human beings. The skills of critical thinking or creativity were thus important not solely or primarily for their problem-solving economic utility, but for equipping us to critique the very frameworks within which problems are defined. Philosophizing about education's wider goals is all very well for urban intellectuals uh, or university academics, but is it relevant to the priorities of a still semi-industrialized and developing society? Do the toiling masses have time or leisure for such activities or for such luxuries? Many migrant workers and rural residents striving to secure a future for their children away from the farm have tended to favour schooling that's especially relentless in its test preparatory focus. Attempts to reduce the pressure of selective testing have, if anything, been least popular amongst those groups, since other means of allocating school places through more strictly enforced zoning rules, for example, threaten to close off opportunities for those who lack the money or the social capital to game the system. And reductions in class hours or restrictions on homework setting in state schools tend to divert the competitive impulse into the private sector, fueling an explosion in shadow education that further disadvantages those who are least able to pay. However, these observations do not warrant dismissing ethical critiques of current practice or seeing their implications as unrealistic or unaffordable. To quote Alison Wolfe again, our recent forebears living in significantly poorer times were occupied above all with the cultural, moral and intellectual purposes of education, to ignore which is to impoverish ourselves. And lack of resources to the extent that it is relevant is hardly a problem for a state that today can finance the establishment of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank or create new islands in the South China Sea. But even when China was indubitably poor in the early post-Mao years, it was not poverty that dictated the official espousal of an elitist and instrumentalist vision of education. The chief obstacles to reconceptualizing and remodeling educational provision have been institutional and political. Inequality and credentialism were hardwired into the education system from the very beginning of the reform era in the late 1970s. Those years saw the prioritization of investment in elite urban key point schools and key universities, the reinstatement of competitive entrance examinations to determine access to them, and radical decentralization of responsibility for funding and administering the system. The chief beneficiaries of these policies were urbanites, particularly the residents of major metropolitan centers, including all the most powerful and well-connected members of the Communist Party itself. With liberalization of the urban labor market in the 1990s, the expansion of higher education and the, subsequent, and the substantial marketization of schooling, these groups were then able rapidly to monetize their educational privileges 
transforming themselves into a new middle class. By the early 21st century, the relatively classless society of the late 1970s had thus become highly stratified, with socio-economic and political elites deeply invested in an unequal and fragmented system of educational provision. As Andrew Walder of Stanford University has recently observed, one advantage that Chinese reformers of the late 1970s held over their Soviet counterparts of that time was the relative weakness, thanks to the Cultural Revolution, of an entrenched nomenclatura with a vested interest in preserving the status quo. In China, there was thus a relatively broad constituency for radical reform, or at least a relatively weak constituency opposing it. The entrepreneurial dynamism that reform unleashed, first in the countryside and later in the cities, brought improvements in living standards for millions that buttressed the regime's performance legitimacy. But the distribution of the resulting benefits today presents challenges for advocates of redistributive economic, social or educational reform, of a kind that their predecessors 40 years ago did not face. The ossification of the post-Mao socio-economic order means that the interests not just of a nomenclatura but of a 250 million strong middle class stand in their way. The patent challenge of inequality combined with the political difficulty of tackling it help explain the rise in contemporary China of an ideology akin to what historians of modern Germany have termed social imperialism. This involves the diversion of frustrations related to the domestic social and political situation into externally directed projects of national aggrandizement. Since the early 2000s, central policymakers have sought to mandate a greater standardization of educational provision and have devoted increased resources to this end, but they have fought shy of confronting the extreme inequalities already embedded in the system. Meanwhile, the pervasive rhetoric of nationalism and an increasingly confrontational foreign policy encouraged Chinese of all classes to rally to the flag and to locate the ultimate source of their frustrations in an unequal or unjust international order. Translated to the international arena, the ethos of meritocratic competition pervading Chinese society shades into a Darwinist vision of a global order in which a resurgent China must compete for recognition and influence. But while it takes a particularly extreme form there, today the combination of rising domestic inequality and nationalist populism is, of course, far from unique to China. Education alone, whatever the neoliberal missionaries of the OECD would have us believe, cannot provide the technical fix for such societal ills. Meritocracy is a noble ideal, but a deeply flawed one. And these flaws are exacerbated when linked to discourses of quality again with Darwinist undertones, that denigrate the less educated or less fortunate. At several points in our book, we highlight the links between the intensity of educational competition, the structuring of the labour market, and the extent of public welfare provision. Investigating the precise nature of those connections is a crucial task for further research. It nonetheless seems safe to say that tempering the extremes of meritocratic competition requires a system for delivering basic entitlements that can ensure reasonable dignity and security for all citizens. In this respect, there is as much to be learnt from post-Mao China's failures as from its successes. 
explaining those failures and addressing them is, in the final analysis, more a matter of politics than of technocratic adjustment. Thank you. And it might be an unfair question, Ed, but I'm just curious about, um, I don't know much about PISA other than, you know, uh, when Shanghai sort of entered the, uh, the, the ranking amongst the OECD countries, obviously it caught a lot of headlines. But how, do you know, know any bit about the background of what did PISA, did the OECD uh, approach Shanghai uh, or did Shanghai go out looking to be a part of this? Um, so a bit of the background of sort of how that came to be. And then also I was interested in, you, you men- mentioned quite briefly that uh, additional schools have now been added and that brought uh, the, the China ranking down a bit. Is that going to continue? Um, uh, are they going to try to get a kind of more holistic view uh, of um, uh, uh, exam outcomes uh, across China? Because that's one thing that always struck me is this, uh, it's quite unfair to kind of compare um, education in Australia with education in Shanghai. I mean, we're talking about the, the most elite slice uh, of, of the Chinese education system. So I just wonder a bit on the background of how that came about and where it might be heading. Right, yes. Um well, I actually had a conversation last year with Jiang Minxuan, you know, China's Pisa Supremo himself, uh, about the background to this. Um, unfortunately, I, I, I didn't carefully note down his response, but I remember him saying that... Uh, so I can't say for certain whether the original initiative lay with the Shanghainese authorities or the Pisa authorities. What I do know is that, uh, at least according to him the initiative originally was from Shanghai rather than from the central government in Beijing. And when uh, the Shanghai authorities discussed this with the central government, it was made clear to them that Shanghai was in it to win it. So in other words, uh, if if you're going to go for this, you better make sure that you win. Um, Now, that being the case, one wonders how the party is taking the results of the most recent PISA test, um, where China has, I can't remember exactly where, you know, this set of Chinese cities and provinces ranks, but, but it's substantially lower than Shanghai did. Um, I, I'm speculating here, but I think to some extent the um, image that that, gives of of China as sort of still having some way to go to match the performance of some other, particularly East Asian societies, uh, may be seen as a good thing by some in policy circles within China uh, because it um, uh, perhaps sort of gives them a stick with which to sort of beat their educational officials and say, you know, you have to do better. Um, but my honest answer is that I don't know exactly how that's been received within China itself. I haven't really had conversations with Chinese counterparts uh, about that. But, I mean, your, your comment about it being unfair to compare the likes of Australia with Shanghai, well, I mean, that's particularly the case given the way that uh, the, 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 the PISA tests within Shanghai have been gamed or distorted, as I was mentioning, by the effective exclusion of migrant 
children from uh, that sample. But it also applies to comparisons between Australia and, let's say, Singapore or Hong Kong, um, because uh, there too, effectively, you're comparing cities, city-states, but cities with uh, far more complex societies. Thanks very much, Ed. Um, I'm very interested that the, the Beijing's policy effectively uh, stratified the society in a more acute way compared with 1970s um, through the education system, through the deliberate education system, according to you. But is this, is this a, a kind of based on the long-term 30-year grand plan to, uh, to, to, to stratify the society so that the CPP from Beijing can manage the society mm. effectively? Mm. Or uh, is this because the CPP just wanted to make sure that, that China will have a kickstart after the Cultural Revolution. But yeah. gradually things turn out that way in 1980s mm. and 90s, mm. and therefore there was no way to go back because by which time they had to strive to mm. maintain political power in Beijing. Mm. So is this a grand plan, 30-year grand plan, or is this a more of an ad hoc response mm. to what was developing uh, in the last 33 decades. Yeah, that's a very good point. I, I think it's, we need to be careful about sort of um, uh, overestimating the extent to which um, what's happened in China over the past 40 years in education or in any other sphere has been the result of a grand plan. I mean, a lot of it is crisis management. Uh, and I don't think that educational planners or policymakers in the late 1970s foresaw how the system was going to develop and how that would influence um, uh, the party's uh, political control. I don't think they necessarily foresaw the stratification of Chinese society that was a result. Um, and in any way, I mean, it, 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 at different points in the post-reform period, actually, the aims of policy have been uh, slightly different. The, the policy has evolved. Pol uh, the, the vision of policymakers in the late 1970s for Chinese society was not the same as the vision of policymakers in the 1990s. Um, but that big swing in policy in the late 1970s from a very, very sort of egalitarian approach to uh, education to a highly stratified, highly elitist one, um, partly relates to the experiences of elites themselves. Um, it relates to the Cultural Revolution itself. Um, so the people who were making this policy in the late 1970s, from Deng Xiaoping on down, were people who had suffered during the Cultural Revolution. The Cultural Revolution, uh, in one sense, was essentially an effort to uh, radically abolish the stratification of Chinese society, but to do it through violent means, uh, by um, forcing, for example, intellectuals, including high school students, out of urban areas into the countryside, where many of them uh, 
taught in sort of basic rural primary schools. Um, the Cultural Revolution saw, therefore saw, saw perhaps the most rapid increase in educational provision in rural areas in China uh, of the um, entire socialist period. Uh, but its long-term effect, ironically, has been anti-egalitarian because the experience of that era uh, amongst Chinese elites has basically uh, created this sort of visceral aversion, I think, to um, talk of prioritizing egalitarian uh, objectives uh, for education. Um, but I don't think that the extent of stratification that's happened within Chinese society was, nonetheless, was, was foreseen in the late 1970s. If you look at some of the um, uh, comments of Deng Xiaoping at that point on education policy, what's interesting is that he refers to the example of Japan, but he refers in some of his speeches in the late 70s to Meiji Japan. Um, now, of course, post-Second World War Japan um, was remarkably economically successful. Um, but as I was just saying in my talk, uh, that economic success, at least up, up to the 1990s, um, uh, coincided with actually increasing levels of equality within Japanese society. And the uniformity of um, at least primary and junior high school education in Japan uh, contributed to that sort of relatively equal outcome. Um, but it seems that the model that um, was uppermost, at least in Deng Xiaoping's mind, in the late 1970s, at least when he looked at Japan, was not Japan then and there, but Meiji, Meiji Japan, which of course was far, far less egalitarian in its approach to education, but far more focused on the um, maximization of state power and its projection, and far more focused on controlling society. Thanks, Ed. Uh, I, I also had a, a glance on your book about this uh, education in the post and uh, society in the post-China. Uh, I think that's very uh, ambitious book, but uh, uh, you did very well in capture the the core uh, themes. Like one side that's uh, inequality, and the other side that's. Uh, uh, nationalism, the growing nationalism uh, as a concern. Uh, I'm particularly interested in about inequality. I think. Uh, Really, um, for, for, for your book, and this is very valuable, actually, you provide a, a, a critical a critique to the orthodox uh, perspective about the development, the great success of China's education uh, achievements, uh, along with the economic miracle in the post-Mao uh, era. Uh, indeed, uh, I just want to echo uh, a point like uh, inequality uh, in education nowadays became a very uh, salient topic uh, for all Chinese uh, people, uh, including the netizens, uh, the also intellectuals, 
to add that to the reference, like uh, Beida, uh, Professor Beida, in Beida, Liu Yunshan, and her uh, work, and um, together with another uh, professor from uh, Nanjing University, and then um, look at the quantitative data about the enrollment, grad, undergraduate enrollment in uh, Beijing Daxue, so the, the top university in China in recent, in the past uh, decade, and realize that uh, the doors open is dramatically uh, closed close and shut towards the to those students from the low socioeconomic uh, level so the Beida now is, the door is wider and wider open to to those in the city uh, uh, high school graduates like from uh, Shanghai or Beijing yeah so that's a that that's a, a strong indicator for this uh, uh, inequality and it's become a growing uh, concern. And um, I like, I think that for the Chinese uh, mentality, uh, it's a, a kind of also is kind of a tradition. Uh, there was a, a phrase called "bu huan gua er huan bu jun." When people don't worry about the, don't complain about the, uh, the poor and inequality, inequality when they are poor, but uh, they complain a lot about uh, inequality when they get rich. So that's a, a pressing issue uh, for no China nowadays, and which your book actually, yeah, critically, uh, yeah, assess on uh, that. I'm just worried about should be how you can, yeah, uh, penetrate into the Chinese uh, publication uh, with this kind of review. <laughs> that yeah. would be quite I, hard. I, yeah. I, for the moment, I don't think we're going to try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, just another uh, maybe a more a technical question. Uh, uh, I saw one of the claims is said that educational expansions is there's no uh, there's a weak link uh, evidence with the labor productivity, but it seems like uh, this is quite again with the consensus uh, about the lab, uh, human capital theory in educational economics or for all people's as mm. a perceived as common sense that you. Uh, you, you invest in education, and then you, you will see the yeah, economic uh, uh, development. And so, can you elaborate more well, this about is, this? Yeah, I mean, the idea that you know, I I expanding education is you know, inevitably going to lead to greater productivity and higher economic growth down the line is, as you say, absolutely seen as sort of common sense by most policymakers and media commentators, certainly. Uh, but I referred in my talk to the, to this book published by uh, Alison Wolfe uh, about 15 years ago now, Does Education Matter?, where she addresses this question and says, well, you know, actually the evidence for it, particularly when we're looking at the expansion of higher education, tertiary education, is very weak. Um, and, I mean, if, you, if, if, if we think about it, nowadays lots of jobs that require graduate qualifications 50 years ago didn't. Does that mean that graduates are doing those jobs better than non-graduates did them 50 years ago? Not necessarily. <laughs> uh, but uh, higher education is um, certainly extremely important for individuals and quite possibly important, or at least potentially important, for reasons other than positional advantage within the labour market. I mean, we would hope 
wouldn't we, that there are sort of intrinsic benefits to receiving a higher education or benefits that are intrinsic to the experience of the education itself, whatever we do with it thereafter. Um, but all the debate around it is about the you know, supposed economic benefits, but actually the evidence for those benefits is rather weak. At least that's what Alison Wolf argues. That's, this is, I'm not an economist. This is not something that I have looked at myself. But another thing, another work that I referred to in my talk was this work that's been done recently by Hikaru Komatsu, or I should say Komatsu Hikaru, uh, and Jeremy Rappoli at Kyoto University, where they've looked specifically at PISA and at PISA scores and the uh, supposed links between PISA performance and economic performance. And, uh, I mean, this is incredibly stupid as soon as you start thinking about it, but, but almost always in media or public debate about PISA, this is what's done. People look at performance now of a society in PISA and its economic performance at the same time. But if PISA has any relevance at all for the economic performance of a society, that, you know, there'll be a lag between the performance of the 15-year-olds now and you know, their productivity as workers in, maybe in 10 years' time. So what Komatsu and Rappoli do is to look at that. You know, instead of looking at the same point in time, they look at the PISA results, this point, economic performance, a bit later. They find no evidence whatsoever for... Um, economic growth benefits for PISA results. It's bullshit. Somewhat from this question, you, you spoke about vocational training as a dead end um, mm. in China, and I'd be interested to hear more about that. Um, I have an interest in Myanmar, and one of uh, and a linked question. Um, in the last number of years, there's been a real change in China's policy where obviously there's been a much more outward-looking um, progression from a governmental level. And there's a lot of um, talk about infrastructure development, which includes things like roads and ports, but it also includes building infrastructure like hospitals. Could you also talk about the possibility of educational infrastructure um, being developed outside of China as an initiative of the Chinese government? But, but also asking about vocational training because you, you really mentioned that as a dead end and I'd like to hear more about that. Yeah. The whole issue of vocational training is a you know, very interesting one but, and, and we write about it in the book although, although it's before trying to tackle it for the purposes of the book it's not an area that I'd looked at at all. Um, but I do remember when I was uh, doing my undergraduate degree, which is actually on British imperial history, primarily looking at India, uh, looking at something uh, uh, the called the Report of the Calcutta University Commission, 1919. And that warned British imperial officials about the dangers of expanding college education more rapidly than... Um, the capacity of the economy or in particular the civil service to absorb graduates because this was likely to prove politically destabilizing in other words threatening for control, colonial control because you have all these graduates who expect employment in 
high status, white collar, in that case generally sort of civil service roles, but if there's no opportunity for them, they will become resentful, they will agitate against the government. And I think this is the context in which we have to see uh, policy on vocational education in China. In fact, the rhetoric around vocational education, of course, is generally about you know, producing the skills that we need for boosting economic growth. But behind this is always the concern about control and about the overproduction of graduates, college graduates, or, high, or senior high school graduates who will expect um, high-status jobs, in other words, jobs where they don't have to get their hands dirty, jobs where they can sit behind a desk and boss other people around, ideally. Um, and the Chinese government has been... You know, the Communist Party has been very worried about um, uh, allowing, therefore, too many people to go into academic senior high school where they'll inevitably then expect to progress on to college. Uh, and so right from the early reform period, there's been this focus on ensuring that uh, a particular proportion of junior high school graduates go into the vocational track. And once you're in the vocational track in, at senior high school level, basically it's virtually impossible for you to go to university. Um, that's it. You are branded for life. <laughs> now, if um, vocational education was seen as important overwhelmingly for purposes of promoting economic growth and efficiency, you would expect significant investment in facilities, teacher training, uh, and in fact, when, we, when you think about it, Vocational education requires more elaborate facilities than academic um, education requires. I mean, if you're studying the sort of conventional academic curriculum, all you need is textbooks and a blackboard, basically. But vocational training, in theory, requires all sorts of often quite expensive equipment. If you look at investment levels per pupil in the vocational track as compared with the academic track, Vocational investment on students in the vocational track on average is far lower than those in the academic track. Um, and that, I think, reflects that the, really the overwhelming priority with respect to vocational education has been diverting uh, a, a, a chunk of the student population away from the academic track in order to manage their expectations fundamentally, in order to say to them, right, well, you had your chance, you failed now, you're not going to college, get used to it. So, yes, it's about social control, really. Uh, I don't want to oversimplify and, uh, and suggest that vocational education does not also have a role in preparing people for employment, but that role, on average, has been rather neglected, I think, in... Chinese vocational education. Um, sorry, your other question was about... It's actually about expansion. Yeah, that's not something I know very much about. I mean, I don't know very much about the government's role in, for example, building schools in other countries specifically. But, of, 
But I mean, if you, I guess if you're the government of Myanmar or anywhere else and the Chinese come along with a suitcase of cash and say, here you are, build a school with it, you're not going to say no. What, what we do say something about in the book, though, is the Chinese government's attempts to expand influence overseas through education. And of course, this is something that is an issue for not just for developing countries, but for developed countries. Does La Trobe have a... Uh, Confucius Institute? Oh, I sh- well, maybe I should self-censor myself at this point. And, uh, <laughs> um, but, of course, that's about the projection of influence. And, and it's fair to say that China, of course, is not the only country that does this. Um, uh, Britain, Britain certainly does it. America does it. France, Germany do it. Does Australia do it? Uh, undoubtedly, in, in, yeah, in, in, in certain ways. Uh, but the Confucius Institute model um, is uh, designed in such a way as to potentially enable uh, influence to be exerted on institutions that have these um, institutes, uh, because the funding is, 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 is not guaranteed. Um, so uh, my understanding is that with the Confucius Institute, you know, uh, on an annual basis, Hanbang can decide whether the funding is going to continue. And um, uh, this, of course, doesn't necessarily happen in every case, but potentially they could come along and say, yeah, we're not happy with the articles that some of your scholars have been publishing in China Quarterly. I'm sorry that, you know, this... this <laughs> The bosses in Beijing, you know, they're putting pressure on us. Do you think you could do something to make this situation slightly less embarrassing? These conversations could happen. So I remember talking many years ago now to some professor from University of California, Berkeley, uh, about Confucius Institutes, and he said, well, we're never going to do it um, because we're afraid of precisely that sort of pressure and the potential for it that the model allows. Stanford University uh, have a Confucius Institute. They're one of the, I think, few, relatively few, sort of really prestigious American universities to have it. But someone there was telling me that um, they, they, they played hardball with, with Hanban. They, they negotiated very hard. Hanban did not want them. Hanban wanted to write a clause into the contract with Stanford that said, you are not going to appoint, as, as, as the sort of professor, professorship that we're funding there, we're, you're not going to be able to appoint anyone who talks about Tibet, basically. And they said, no, look, you can't, you can't tell us that. And in that case, apparently, Hanban backed down because it was ultimately, they felt it was more important to have Stanford associated with this brand so that they could go to other universities then and say, look, it's okay. You know, Stanford's got one. You can have one too. Uh, it was more important for them to do that than in this specific instance to exercise control. But overall, as we've seen with China Quarterly incident last week, you know, the, not only the um, capacity but also the um, determination of the Chinese government to exert influence overseas through education is is um, expanding.